It was on June 7th of 1992 when three women completely vanished from a single-family home in the Missouri Ozarks, and they've been missing ever since. Police are working extended shifts around the clock trying to find Cheryl Levitt, her daughters Suzanne Streeter, and Suzanne's best friend Stacy McCall. I thought, there's something really wrong about this. She's not here, her clothes are here, and her car is here, and her purse is here, and the keys are here. I think we better report them missing. Somehow, they were targeted, uh, but certainly the person that did us had enough of an idea of what they needed to do to be able to get rid of three bodies. It just looked like, and it's the word I've used ever since this happened, like they were taken up to heaven. They were just gone. This is the Springfield Three, the story of three missing women who forever changed a small Missouri town and the people in it. There was no DNA at the scene and no bodies have been found. All that's left are some tattered missing posters and a lot of theories. So what really happened? To make one person disappear would be difficult. To make three disappear is nearly impossible. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. With many thanks to Anya and Zach for their help with some of the pronunciations in this episode. Also, thank you to our guest writer for this episode. This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. As the ambulance wound its way through the crowded London streets, Teresa did indeed come to and tried to speak, and although it was difficult and she sounded as she was choking, she was able to say to Ron, quote, I was on the platform, then stabbed. This is Red Rump, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 34, Teresa Lubinska. Countess Teresa Lubinska was born in southeastern Poland on the 18th of April 1884 into the aristocratic and noble Polish family of Skarszynski as the daughter of Wenceslas Skarszynski and Dorota Goembioska. Teresa received a top-class education at an elite Catholic boarding school for girls, run by the Sisters of the Immaculate Conception in Jasłowiec in the Podolo region. She went on to study literature and history at the Jagiellonian University in Krakow and then a further art degree at the higher art course of Adrian Baranetsky. At the age of 18, she married 31-year-old Edward Lubienski, a member of a once powerful clan and extensive landowners. She went to live on the family estate in Wachau and had had two children, a son, Stanisław, born in 1906, and a daughter, Isabella, born in 1910. Edward, as a member of the Polish military, was killed during the Polish-Bolshevik conflict in 1919, and following his death, Teresa moved to Warsaw with her two children and became an active member of the Polish Red Cross. Her son, Stanisław, passed out of military academy as a cavalry officer and at the outbreak of World War II, was an operational officer 
He died from his wounds at Valaka Velklova in the Campions Forest on the 19th of September 1939. As the German army advanced through Poland, Teresa became involved in the war effort, working in telecommunications in the autumn of 1939, dealing with air alarms until the Germans approached Warsaw. She worked at the Warsaw City Command and later in the European Hotel, which housed a large part of the military headquarters offices and where there was a food point for officers coming back from the battlefield. Despite the regular German bombings, Teresa continued working until five shells destroyed the room she was in, killing one of her colleagues, Marta, and slightly injuring her. Germany was now occupying Poland and Teresa was living in a flat in the Saviour's Square, Warsaw, a flat that would soon become known as Salvation. This was because Teresa organised general assistance for a civilian population deprived of the basics of life, food, clothing and medical treatment. She did all of this from her flat. There was another side to Teresa's work. She began covertly operating with the Polish intelligence organisation, the Musketeers. The Musketeers had been formed in October of 1939 as a subversive underground resistance unit. The unit was set up by Polish ex-military commanders, who themselves were trying to avoid capture by the Germans. Teresa's role was to ensure the smooth operation of the Warsaw resistance cell by compiling reports, taking illegal photographs for the Allies, intercepting correspondence, compiling maps of military and strategic locations, and breaking Nazi secret codes. She also supported covert military action and sabotage operations. Salvation was also a point for the reception, concealment and briefing of espionage agents, some targeting German intelligence and others on German installations. It also became the focal point for couriers from Hungary and the secret Polish army, TAP. She also acted as a transit point for senior Polish personnel trying to flee the country to allied territories by producing false documents, passports and identity papers. Teresa continued with this invaluable work, every day putting herself in considerable danger. Then, in September of 1942, Stefan Stavit-Vikovsky, the head of the Musketeers, was murdered. The following day, the Gestapo arrested two people who were working closely with Teresa. They were immediately sent to the dreaded Ravensbrück concentration camp. Many went into Ravensbrück. Few came out. The question for Teresa was what to do. The writing was on the wall for her, but if she fled, where would she go and what good would it do for the war effort? What about all the people who were relying on her for documents, passports, routes out of the country and intelligence information? If she stayed, she could continue her work, but in doing that there was a high probability that she would be arrested and taken to a concentration camp. She did, however, decide to stay and carry on for as long as she could. Even just one more day was a day spent undermining the Nazi hold over her country. For two months, her work continued, until in November of 1942, the Countess was arrested in her own apartment and taken to Paviak. It was there that she was questioned and tortured for six months. 
As far as we know, during those six months, she refused to reveal the name of collaborators and resistance fighters, until in May of 1943, the Gestapo gave up and she was sent to Auschwitz concentration camp, in itself a death sentence. Teresa, however, not only survived the experience, but also organised the other prisoners into groups who could help each other by providing medical treatment, support and activities while they were in confinement. Unfortunately, with the Allies advancing and victory ever closer, Teresa was moved to the Ravensbrück death camp to await execution. Whilst at Ravensbrück, Teresa set up the same prisoner groups as she had previously, and the other prisoners began to refer to her as the Angel of Ravensbrück. On one occasion, she was offered a chance to be involved in an escape attempt that could have saved her life, but she refused, believing she could do more good by staying with the prisoners at Ravensbrück. Miraculously, just before she was due to be executed, and as the Allies' advance gathered pace, the Swiss Red Cross managed to rescue the prisoners at Ravensbrück and evacuate them to Switzerland safely. As the war ended, Theresa decided to move to London, where her surviving daughter had been evacuated after working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Paris. Theresa set up home and lived alone in a small flat in Cornwall Gardens in Kensington. She was, as ever, an activist, working with the Red Cross and also devoting her life to helping Polish ex-prisoners of the concentration camps to help them get themselves set up and get work. Theresa continued her work fighting for justice for those involved in the war effort for the next few years and built up a circle of friends and a variety of activities she was involved with. She lost none of her fighting spirit the older she got, and if anything, she became more active and more determined. On Friday the 24th of May 1957, Teresa was at a May Day party in Florence Road, Ealing, with around 30 friends. After the celebratory meal and countless toasts, it was getting late and Teresa decided to leave to make her way home to her flat in Cornwall Gardens. Gloucester Road Underground Station was closest to her home, so she walked across Ealing Common, heading towards the underground at around 10pm. She was accompanied by a Roman Catholic priest and Polish assistant at Brompton Chapel, who had also been at the party and decided to make his way back to his home at Earl's Court. They caught the eastbound Piccadilly Line train travelling in one of the middle carriages of the lightly loaded service. There were about 12 other people in the carriage and Teresa and the priest were chatting about the party and the guests who were there. Meanwhile, the other 12 passengers in the carriage sat quietly, reading their papers, knitting or just staring into space. The priest said goodnight to Teresa as he got off the train at Earl's Court, but stopped before Gloucester Road, and made his way home. Meanwhile, at 10.19 at Gloucester Road Station, Emmanuel Akinyemi was one of three members of staff on duty. He was operating the lift and collecting tickets as usual, when he heard footsteps on the emergency staircase leading from street level to platform level. 
he thought it was probably more passengers trying to avoid their fare. The 27-step spiral staircase and the lift were the only two ways to enter or exit the platforms at Gloucester Road. There were no automatic ticket barriers in those days, and it was much easier to get away without paying the fare by using the emergency stairs to avoid the lift exit and ticket collectors. Teresa's train was drawing into Gloucester Road as Emmanuel started the lift on its slow descent down to the platform, which was now crowded with people travelling home from the West End theatres and restaurants. About five minutes before, a lot of people had arrived at the station on a westbound train from Piccadilly Circus, and not all of them had exited the platform yet. But there was nothing particularly suspicious about any of their behaviour. As the lift he was in reached platform level, he heard a woman's voice shout, quote, Bandit. As the lift doors opened, Emmanuel saw an elderly woman staggering towards the lift. She was clutching at her chest. Not realising the seriousness of the situation, he asked, quote, What are you talking about? However, he quickly realised that the woman needed help and grabbed her as she was just about to collapse. He helped her into the lift just as she said, quote, I have been knifed. At first, Emmanuel didn't understand what she was talking about because she didn't seem too badly hurt, but then he saw blood streaming down her jacket and pouring out from the left side of her chest. Emmanuel frantically fumbled with the up button on the lift and the doors slowly closed. The lift began its painful lethargic process towards street level. It was so slow, an individual could outpace it by running up the stairs of the emergency staircase if they were fit enough. As the lift ascended, Emmanuel heard the sound of footsteps on the staircase again. Once the lift had reached street level, the doors opened and Emmanuel shouted loudly to Station Inspector Clark to quote, look after this passenger, she's been hurt, unquote. He then rushed out of the station entrance to the public telephone box along the street and called 999 for an ambulance. When he had finished, he ran back into the station to help in any way that he could and found, to his surprise, PC Ron Sherfield of the Metropolitan Police already on the scene and looking after Teresa. He happened to be passing the station and Station Inspector Clark had shouted for help when he saw him. PC Ron Sherfield had dashed in and taken charge of the situation. Now he was leaning over Teresa, trying to keep her alive by applying pressure to the wound and talking to her. The ambulance arrived quickly from St Mary's Hospital, which was close by, and PC Ron Sherfield went with Teresa. Firstly, to comfort this badly injured person, but also because Ron, by then, suspected Teresa was not going to live. He wanted to comfort her, as well as hear any last words she might say that would give him information that he could pass on to the now inevitable investigation. As the ambulance wound its way through the crowded London streets, Teresa did indeed come to and tried to speak, and although it was difficult, she sounded as though she was choking, she was able to say to Ron, quote, I was on the platform, then stabbed, unquote. Shortly after this, Teresa Lubinska stopped moving and breathing. She had died of multiple stab wounds. 
Once she reached St. Thomas's, it was confirmed that Teresa Lubinska had died of her injuries. The pathologist that carried out her post-mortem said that she had been stabbed three times in the chest. Two of those had pierced her heart. She was also stabbed once in the stomach and once in the back. Each stab wound had been caused by a single-bladed knife, no longer than two inches long, an unusually short weapon for such a murderous attack. Even so, this looked like a serious attempt to fatally injure that had been successful. British Transport Police London Control Room immediately dispatched a chief inspector and sergeant to the scene, but because this was a murder, it was the Metropolitan Police who took control of the incident, and they sent a DS to the scene, and Chief Inspector Pedal was called from home. Such was the importance of the investigation. Superintendent Ron Vivian, an experienced officer with 27 years on the force and nearing retirement, was asked to take charge as one of his final cases that was also to prove to be one of the most challenging. The detectives first arranged a thorough search of the station, including the platform, lift and emergency stairs that ran beside the lift, and established evidence of blood near the lift. There was no blood found anywhere else on the platform, so the exact location of the attack could not be established. Police also dusted for fingerprints. They then started an extensive search of the track and tunnel between South Kensington, Gloucester Road and Earls Court stations, a total distance of two miles. They used magnets and industrial vacuum cleaners with floodlights to try and find the murder weapon. Nothing was discovered on the first attempt. This murder on London's underground had caused public alarm and, as well as evidence gathering, the police felt they had to reassure the travelling public with this huge display that an extensive search was underway. The police then started to question staff at Gloucester Road and the passengers they could trace who had got off at Gloucester Road. They traced the exact train the Countess had been travelling on and questioned the driver and guard who were unable to help. Other train and bus drivers that were in that area were also questioned and the police searched drains and sifted through rubbish bins in the search for any clue or murder weapon or even discarded bloody clothing, but again found no evidence of any kind. By this time, the police were overworked and could not give each piece of information the scrutiny it deserved, so drafted in detectives from Hammersmith Notting Hill and other parts of West London. These detectives were tasked with supporting the local CID team by sifting through the enormous amount of information being gathered from the interviews that were being conducted. They did this, as well as working through the countless clues that the detectives had uncovered. Even with this extra help, the whole team was working 16-hour days, seven days a week. They were well organised though, with the detectives divided into four groups, each dealing with a different aspect of the thousands of inquiries that they were making. The main group of police were dealing with general calls to the police in response to their inquiries and publicity for information. The second group focused on people around the Gloucester Road station area, and this included those with a criminal record, those already of interest to police, and also the homeless population around this area. The final two groups of police officers were made up of police who themselves were Polish or Polish experts or Polish speakers. 
The first of these two groups, specialised in investigating the hundreds of Polish people that Teresa was trying to help and who were listed in her notebooks that were found at her flat in Cornwall Gardens. The second of these groups investigated the movements of Polish people who were living outside of London. However, even with all of this work, the police were making little progress. What was particularly hampering their investigation was the lack of witnesses. They knew that there had been a number of passengers who got off the train at Gloucester Road that night, as 17 people had travelled up in the lift between station and ground level. Some of these people must have seen the murder, unless it was carried out in a particularly covert way, as Teresa was travelling in the middle carriages, not at one end or the other. Some passengers alighting surely would have walked past her on their way to the exit. Nobody came forward. Not one person even to explain that they had got off the 1019 but had not seen anything. Was it just that people didn't want to get involved? Or had people been threatened by the murderer as they walked past the scene? Or was it something more organised? Whatever the reason, the lack of witnesses was effectively shielding the murderer from justice. So, in an attempt to jog memories, to clarify their understanding of the exact sequence of events and any small details that might help them, police retraced the steps of Teresa on the night of the 24th of May 1957 through a reconstruction of the events led by the priest who had travelled with her and who got off the train one stop before Teresa at Earl's Court. He walked with the police from Florence Road to Ealing Common Station, bought a ticket from the ticket office, travelled on the same service and stood in the seventh compartment. Just as he had done on the night of the murder, he talked and gesticulated with the police who took meticulous notes. They all got off at Earl's Court and had a short debriefing. The priest then went home, whilst the police caught another train to Gloucester Road where they discussed the events, timed the journey up the emergency stairs three times and followed the route that Teresa had taken. During the investigation, the police appealed for two people to come forward, a man and a woman. They were not believed to be connected with each other, and both had been seen by one of the railway staff running from the platform at Gloucester Road just before Teresa staggered towards the lift. When nobody came forward despite the appeal, police set up a watch at Gloucester Road station in case either of them returned. The male was described as about 27 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, medium build, clean-shaven with fair hair, wearing a light brown check suit and was possibly, and I quote from the call-out issued by the police at the time, quote, a foreigner. The female was said to be brunette with hair cut short, having a very smart appearance, about 20 years old and 5 foot tall. She wore a black coat and red high-heeled shoes. Whilst neither came back to the station while the police had a watch on it, they did manage to trace two or three women matching the description, but all three could prove that they were in a different area of London at the time of the murder. The police drew a blank. They also said that they were looking to trace another, older woman. She became known as the Lady in Black. She had spoken to a woman sitting next to her on a number 49 bus sometime after the incident and told her that she had seen Teresa on the underground station and that she had been advised to speak to the police but said that she didn't want to get mixed up in the affair. 
whilst the lady in black stayed on the number 49. The person she had been speaking to got off at High Street Kensington. If the police could find the lady in black, this could be the breakthrough they were hoping for, as she might be able to provide substantial help in the investigation, in particular describing any people that she had seen Teresa with. Despite repeated appeals, the lady in black never revealed herself. With so little progress, more extensive track searches were made and a total of 214 Piccadilly line trains were examined. Hundreds of railway staff were interviewed, including 64 train crews. Over the next few months, a number of knives were found on the underground and each was meticulously examined for forensics. The actual murder weapon was, however, never traced. The police launched a massive appeal for information with a broadcast on television and Scotland Yard's biggest ever posters displayed across London. It had little effect. Either there were no witnesses, or if there were, they were too scared to come forward. The police did, however, identify some suspects. One was an underground worker who had booked a room at a local hotel, but then not used it. The police questioned him to find out why, but were satisfied by his answers and he was eliminated as a suspect. A school employee who had come to work the morning after the murder with a black eye and scratches to his face was also questioned, but was also eliminated after questioning. A man found loitering on the station on the days before the assault was traced and questioned but on the night of the murder, he had just been taken into care at a psychiatric hospital. The investigation and publicity continued, and then towards the middle of June, the police had what they thought was a breakthrough. Into Kensington Police Station walked a seemingly normal member of the public. He approached the inquiry's counter and confessed to the murder of Teresa. He was taken to one of the interview rooms where he was questioned for a number of hours. A few days later, another person, this time a woman, approached the inquiry desk at Kensington and confessed to the same murder. Whilst it quickly became clear that these people weren't being honest, the police had to spend valuable time meticulously questioning and investigating every claim because they could not afford to miss what might be a valuable and legitimate piece of evidence. Over the subsequent days, a number of people confessed to the murder and were actually questioned by police until they could establish that the confession was false with the aim of gaining notoriety or for some other unknown reason. The investigation was proving very difficult as the police had so little to go on and no witnesses or none that had come forward and they were running out of leads. The police now started to look internationally and flew to Genoa on the 8th of September to question two Italian men and an Italian woman who had been staying near Gloucester Road tube station at the time of the murder. But yet again, this was a dead end. The inquest into Teresa Lubinska's death was completed on the 20th of August 1957 in Hammersmith and concluded with a verdict of murder by some person or persons unknown. By this time, the police had already spoken to about 18,000 people 
and would go on to interview approximately another 2,000 who were abroad or who were untraceable at the time of the investigation. There were many others who never came forward for interview. The police just didn't have enough information or evidence to work on. They had the dying words of the Countess. They had Emmanuel, who helped Teresa, and whose evidence was that somebody had run up the emergency stairs at or about the same time as he and Teresa were in the lift. They had the evidence of the rail worker who saw the man and the woman running away from the scene. And after three months, thousands of work hours and tens of thousands of pounds, that is all they had. London's Polish community could make no sense of the murder. Teresa was a hero of the Polish resistance and was held in high regard by all who knew her. They couldn't believe Teresa would have any enemies. Who would have wanted to kill her? This lack of a confirmed motive was inexplicable and was seriously undermining the police investigation as well. At the start of the investigation, the police had identified three possible motives for the murder of Teresa. She was stabbed whilst someone was trying to rob her and steal her large handbag. She was killed by, quote, hooligans after she had reprimanded them. Or she was killed by a German collaborator, someone with a similar connection, or a Polish agent working on behalf of the then Polish state. These were their thoughts as the case drew to a close. Was robbery the motive? Teresa was wearing a valuable silver brooch and a large and impressive looking handbag, clearly marking her out publicly as a person of interest for anyone intent on robbery. And yet Teresa still had both of these items with her when she fell into the arms of station foreman Emmanuel. Nothing, as far as the police were aware, had been taken from her. Furthermore, the police had carried out a forensic examination of her handbag and concluded that it had not been searched or opened by anyone other than Teresa. And there was no sign, as far as the police could see, of any panicked searching of Teresa's bag by herself. If it was a robbery, the attacker would have needed to get close enough to her to stab her three times in the chest with a tiny two-inch bladed knife. Robbery appeared extremely unlikely as a motive. If not robbery, did Teresa have some sort of argument with one or more people on the station platform? An argument that turned very nasty and led to an attack on the 73-year-old Countess. The station porter at Gloucester Road had told the police as early as the 31st of May that a gang of youths were on the platform at Gloucester Road and that their behaviour was, quote, loud and boisterous, the sort of situation anyone would want to avoid if they could. But Teresa was different. She had strict ideas on behaviour and wasn't afraid to tell people what they were. After all, this was a person who had survived one of the most vicious and brutal regimes in history and had lived through the terror of the concentration camps to claim victory over her Nazi oppressors. A few loud youths on a London underground platform would not frighten her. Teresa would be quite willing to tell them what she thought of their behaviour. There are some people who would not take kindly to that and might decide to teach this elderly woman a lesson particularly if the platform had few other people about and those that were there might subsequently be petrified of consequences if they gave their details to police that subsequently came out at trial. 
This second possibility seemed much more likely to the police than robbery. However, there was also a third possibility, that there was some kind of political motive behind Teresa's death. Teresa, as we know, was held in a number of concentration camps during the war and had also ran an intelligence operation in Warsaw before that. She was known to have an excellent memory, particularly for faces. She was murdered just 12 years after her release from the concentration camps, when the search was on for Nazis or Nazi sympathisers, so that they could be tried for war crimes. Teresa would have been able to recall accurately those involved in the suppression and torture of her and her fellow concentration camp prisoners, as well as those she could identify from her work as a resistance fighter. She would have been an invaluable resource in identifying the guilty and describing their horrendous crimes in detail. It was also known that the Nazis planted prisoners in the concentration camps themselves. These people would spy on the prisoners and pass on information. Teresa's work inside the camp, that had caused her to be known as the Angel of Ravensbrück, might well have been known to the prison authorities and others in positions of power. And it was likely Teresa would not have known who the spies were, as they had been expertly trained to appear just like any other prisoner. Teresa was also a fierce campaigner for the Polish community. Over 1,000 in Britain and 5,000 Polish people in Europe trying to get the compensation and reconciliation for the time, pain and suffering that they had endured whilst in concentration camps. She was very much still an activist. If Teresa's identity had been known to people who were still alive, who feared identification, there is a real possibility that given the open nature of British society, Teresa could have been traced, followed and murdered by someone who feared she might identify them or that there could have been a price on her head. Some five years earlier, on the 15th of June 1952, her very good colleague and friend Christina, from the Organisation of Musketeers, had also been murdered by stabbing. At the time, the murder was attributed to an obsessed male who was subsequently executed and the case was closed. But the incident had left Teresa shaken, and she took the murder of such an influential wartime resistance figure hard. There is also the question of Polish authorities. After the war, Poland was under communist rule and suffered Stalinist repression causing social unrest, political turmoil and economic failure. Teresa was a fierce critic of the post-war Polish government and she vocally criticised and campaigned against it as the influential chairperson of various free Polish organisations. She had become a thorn in the side of the totalitarian Polish regime in Warsaw. Teresa's daughter, Isabel, was convinced of this and said, quote, I am absolutely sure it is a political crime. For several days, I felt a tragedy coming, unquote. The police did investigate this aspect of the case and Polish-speaking police mingled in the congregation at Teresa's funeral to see if the perpetrators would reveal themselves. They did not. On the other hand, there is also the question of the murder weapon. A small knife seems an unlikely choice of weapon for an assassination, and a well-lit platform is an unlikely venue for a premeditated murder. 
Talking about Teresa's death, the General Secretary of the Federation of Polish Exiles in London said, quote, This is a great shock and loss to the Polish community in London. The Countess was very well known and very well esteemed throughout Poland and by every Pole in this country. That she could have had an enemy, especially among Poles, is quite unbelievable. She was a woman of much bravery, very religious and always the champion of the poor. Unquote. The police were stuck. As Detective Inspector John DeRose told the inquest, despite 18,000 interviews, there appeared to be a conspiracy of silence that had shrouded the perpetrator's guilt. This became a high-profile unsolved murder. The most likely seemed to be that Teresa had been murdered by a gang of unidentified youths who may have threatened anyone who witnessed the events with reprisal. But there was no firm evidence for this. Countess Teresa Lubinska was posthumously honoured by the Polish people when she was awarded the Golden Cross of Merit with swords, quote, in recognition of her devotion to the cause of free Poland. The swords of her award recognised how her gallantry had involved personal danger to herself. Several hundred people attended her burial at Brompton Chapel on the 1st of June 1957 where a mass sung and the three medals that she earned for courage and valour in life were placed on her coffin as it was carried underneath the Bath Stone Arch of Brompton Cemetery to an area to the right of the main path. Some 65 years later, the marble slab that marks her grave is well tended. For a chance visitor to the cemetery, it is indistinct from the other tombstones in the churchyard. Little do people know as they walk past it that the person it commemorates was a war hero, an active member of the resistance, a concentration camp survivor, a friend of the poor, the disposed and the wronged, and an outspoken activist who was murdered at Gloucester Road Underground Station on the 24th of May 1957. Assailant unknown. With many thanks to our brand new Patreons, Dale Hyde, Linda Davidson, Nelly, Sarah Starr, Claire McAdam and LJ. Thank you so much for your support. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.